Kia ora, and welcome to the Dawn Chorus, which is coming out just after lunchtime. There's a reason for that. Uh, it's been another hugely wet day in Auckland, and uh, Lynn and I decided to attend a news conference that happened just before midday in central Auckland, where new Prime Minister Chris Hipkins, Michael Wood, who's the Transport Minister and now the new Minister for Auckland, along with the Finance Minister, Grant Robertson, who up until yesterday was the Infrastructure Minister, all got together to announce the extension for the fourth time of the $0.25 a litre fuel and diesel tax cuts that were originally introduced for three months back in March of 2022, when... Russia invaded Ukraine and the price of oil went to $120 a barrel and the price of petrol rose well over $3 a litre. Well, since then, uh, we've had a continued inflation shock for a lot of people. It's true, actually, though, that household disposable income for most people has actually kept ahead of inflation. Now, you may argue, how is that possible when wage inflation was less than inflation? Well, for most households, the incomes have actually risen faster than wages because they've worked longer hours, more people are living in households, and also uh, we generally have more people working. And um, this means that, uh, on the whole, most people have not suffered real household income Cuts. But of course, for those who rely most heavily on petrol and food and other consumables who spend almost 100% or sometimes more than 100% of their disposable income on the, on the basics of life, then obviously they have been hit hardest by the rise in inflation. Those with mortgages, and remember that's still a relatively small proportion, around 10 to 15% of households their disposable income now is starting to be affected quite dramatically, particularly if they've got large mortgages and, and they've been able to, or they're in the process of refixing now. And remember, over $140 billion is likely to be refixed before the election in October, in mid-October. So the government faces a particular immediate political problem, which is the increased cost of living, particularly for those middle-of-the-road voters, the ones who are now starting to see the mortgage costs coming through, and the government, which is behind in the polls and wanting to demonstrate its empathy for those people who are struggling with high inflation, has decided to extend the $0.25 cents a litre subsidy. This is going to cost the government about $718 million in effectively lost revenue. It's also extended the half-price public transport fares to the end of June and made permanent the half-price fares for those on community services cards after the end of June. So uh, this is all uh, very simple and basically short-term politics. But it's happening on a day, a second extreme weather day in Auckland, where the effects of climate change are right in everyone's faces. So one of the problems with the political economy of climate change policy is that the reason you might, for example, um, pay a higher tax now or sacrifice some sort of um, um, fancy car or, um, 
or spending on a motorway or whatever it is. The cost of that is balanced in the minds of voters and therefore politicians against the potential long-term benefits, or more importantly, avoiding the big long-term costs of climate change. Now, that could be in the financial form, actually, of paying large credits into the international system if Aotearoa does not uh, meet its commitments under the various international accords we've signed up to. It obviously um, is seen through the effects of higher insurance and road repair and all sorts of other infrastructure costs we're going to have to bear in the coming years because of climate change. But often one of the problems here is that convincing voters they should give something up now or pay something more now, the pain of that, convincing them it's worth it because they're going to avoid even more pain later on down the line, or they're going to uh, produce a gain. So, for example, uh, if you can invest in renewable electricity and the cost of that is actually going to be lower than the cost of petrol and diesel in coming years, you might think that it's worth it. But there's a typical problem there, which is the further off into the future these potential gains or avoided losses are, the harder it is to convince people that they're real. They can't see it in front of their faces. And we tend to discount things that are going to happen to us, both good and bad, but particularly the good, uh, when they're a long way off in the future. So um, we often see uh, this play out in a very difficult situation where politicians and voters focus on the short term and try to avoid taking things away from people uh, because they don't like it, (laughs) even when uh, demonstrably um, it's in their best interest to in the long run. So that's one of the problems with climate change. It's the immediacy problem. But today and Friday, There was no problem convincing people about the immediacy of the effects of climate change in Auckland. We could see it running down the street, climbing up the wall, stinking up our clothes and carpets, washing away our cars. That's pretty immediate. Yet still, the government has gone ahead with effectively an extended subsidy for increasing climate emissions. Uh, even in the face of seeing the the effects of climate change right in people's faces. And it begs the question, you know, what's it going to take to actually uh, shock people into accepting action that might uh, reduce climate emissions? And also, what are the fiscal mechanisms and decisions at work behind the scenes that are driving this sort of behaviour. And it's worth knowing about the fiscal practices of the government behind the scenes and how it approaches climate policy. So we have a thing called the Climate Emergency Response Fund, which was put in place last year and decisions were made about it at the end of 2021. It's a fund, a pot of money if you like, that the government has created with $4.5 billion or so in which money from the emissions trading scheme, so effectively higher taxes on petrol and diesel, are put into that fund and then used from that fund to spend on various measures to reduce emissions. And currently the forecast is that the 
uh, money from emission, the emissions trading scheme over the next four years in the current forecasts will be um, around about $3.6 billion. So far, uh, much less than that has been committed to be spent. And the guts of the issue here is that the Treasury and the government, and basically parties of both sides of Parliament, both National and Labour, have agreed that any big climate policies that the government runs will be fiscally neutral. That means you're essentially recycling money you collect this year into spending on climate uh, measures this year. You're not using your balance sheet. Now, this is an interesting problem for those thinking about um, how you solve long-term issues with infrastructure spending and what tools you use to fund it. And also, who are the beneficiaries and the losers of decisions about spending on infrastructure and how it's paid for? So um, one of the problems we have is that uh, our inaction on climate change has meant that we're pushing the costs off into the future onto voters who are either too young to vote now or aren't even born. And the beneficiaries of that, i.e. because their their tax rates are staying low and because um, they're able to keep doing the things that they're currently doing now, are the existing taxpayers and effectively the median voters that the government wants to win over, or the opposition. And that means uh, what you see is inaction on climate change uh, effectively pushing the costs off into the future and then hoping that you don't have to deal with the results when they eventually come down the track. Well, they seem to be coming a bit faster than expected, and certainly they are expensive. It looks like this series of storms in Auckland will cost more than $1 billion and be our largest insurance event apart from the Christchurch earthquakes and clearly our largest climate change insurance event. So why does the government pursue a fiscally neutral policy on climate change policies. So we've seen it with the Climate Emergency Response Fund. There's no attempt to borrow extra to spend on climate infrastructure, maybe public transport, it might be trains, it might be subsidies to buy electric cars, setting up electric charging stations, um, subsidies for electric bikes, building cycleways, walkways, medium density housing close to town, all those sorts of things. You could use your balance sheet, i.e. borrow money, and then repay the money over a long period of time and pay the interest on that money over a long period of time. So what you're effectively doing is rather than taking all the cost on today and paying for it straight out of today's savings or today's taxes, you spread, you smear the cost out over a long run. So it's a much fairer way to effectively spend money on adjusting to climate change you um, have some of the costs borne by today's taxpayers and some by tomorrow's taxpayers. And it's a much cleaner, clearer spreading of the costs. And that's one element of the government's fiscally neutral policy on climate change. Secondly, we have the Clean Cloud Rebate Scheme. So the, the way this works is that those people who buy double care buttes and big honking um, gas-guzzling cars they pay extra when they buy the car and that money is then shuffled down to those people who pay a little bit less when they buy an electric car or a hybrid car or one with very low emissions. So 
sort of makes sense. You're incentivizing buying low emissions cars and penalizing high emissions cars. But the net effect is that, in theory, the taxpayer generally doesn't have to pay for this. It's fiscally neutral. And this, for me, is an extension of an intergenerational wealth crime. It is refusing to use the Crown's balance sheet to deal with an intergenerational issue and is lumping all of the costs up onto future generations to ensure you can get elected today by focusing on the so-called bread and butter issues. How could you do it differently? Well, you could try to work out um, how to repair that long-term damage and avoid future damage by investing in all of those uh, climate investments that I talked about earlier, increasing your debt, and then the slightly higher interest costs would be spread out over taxpayers over time. But to do that, you'd have to breach two simple rules that both major parties abide by and which are set by Treasury and which infects the culture right across the public service and parliament about how the government does things, how involved it is in the economy, how high taxes are and how much debt we have. Essentially, Labour has agreed and National, by default, agrees basically the same thing, that taxes will not be more than around about 30% of GDP over the long run. That's much lower than it was pre-1984. And secondly, that net government debt won't be any more than about 20 or 30% of GDP over the long run. So currently it's about 20% and it's forecast to drop to 14% over the next four or five years. By forecasting that drop in net debt, the government is essentially saying we have made a decision to prioritise lower debt, lower interest rates, cheaper consumption now than having higher interest rates, higher debt and higher costs over the long run, but creating assets and avoiding costs that future generations are about to bear. In effect, our government makes an intergenerational wealth decision when it chooses to have a fiscally neutral climate policy. I'm Bernard Hickey. That was a chorus on Wednesday the 1st of February. Ka kite anō.